We are in Daniel 8 today, and so as I like to do, I like to start with something that has nothing to do with Daniel 8, which is this quote uh, on the board there. So while the secular world views history as a random, linear, and non-repeating unfolding of human affairs, in reality, history is a divinely controlled, pattern-based, intimately overseen unfolding of God's plan of redemption. So when we study the Word, when we study Scripture, when we live, we need to understand that this is not random, that what we read is not without being part of a plan, and it's God's plan, and it leads to redemption with Him if we're paying attention. So I wanted to start with that. You're welcome. All right, so last week, we were introduced to the apocryphal visions starting in Daniel 7. If, if you missed it, it is uh, on our webpage. It is in our, um, what do they call that? The, uh, when you talk and people listen to it. Podcast, thank you. Wow. And nice, sick, I can't remember normal things now. So, <laughs> uh, But take the time, if you haven't listened to it, listen to the work uh, and the historical reality that was shared last week uh, by Tristan on that. Uh, it makes my job a lot easier this week because uh, I don't have to cover a lot of the historical ground, which also meant since it's been weeks since I originally prepared this, everything got changed multiple times. Thanks, Tristan. Appreciate it. So the vision in Daniel 8 is a bit different than 7. It's still apocryphal, but for one, this vision occurred when Daniel was awake. Um, maybe that's not a big deal. It, amused me, and, and uh, the revelation from the Lord came during a moment in time, and, and it took Daniel a bit by surprise as, as we read through it, but it reminds us that when God decides to reveal the truth to us, He will. It does not matter if we're awake or asleep when He has something to say and we live life ready to listen, the truth is revealed. And so with these visions, there's an immediate truth explained to Daniel and then there's this overarching truth that's revealed to the generations to come, which that would be us. So an overarching truth that helps us understand who God is if we choose to seek Him and pay attention. So for the first part of today, I want to take a gander at the immediate truth regarding the vision of Daniel. Uh, but before we do that, let's pause for a moment and open our hearts and minds and ask the Lord to enter this place. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we give this moment, this gathering to you and to you alone. May the words and ideas expressed and talked about today, may they reflect your glory, your truth, your wisdom, you alone, Lord. Fill our hearts, fill this moment. May your spirit fill us completely. Open our ears to your truth and your truth alone. In Christ's name, amen. So if you've got your Bibles today, um, turn to Daniel 8. Again, uh, we're going to start in verse 1. And we're reading from the ESV. It should be up on the board uh, at some point. Aha, there we go. So in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his great power. 
He did as he pleased and became great. Um, immediately, I've got much easier to understand animals than uh, Tristan did, so yay. So when Daniel received this vision, he was in the employ of King Belshazzar, uh, of the writing of the wall fame, right? And the place Daniel saw and was taken to was one of the royal seats of Persia on the river Uli. This was in the province of Elam, part of Persia, which was adjacent to Babylon. Uh, and at this particular point in time, this was not a friendly place for Daniel, being in the employ, albeit unwillingly, of the king of Babylon. Yet, while Daniel was a captive, the Lord could take him wherever he wanted to, much like Ezekiel, right? He took him to a place that he desired. While Daniel was physically bound to his place, his spirit was not. And the spirit of the Lord is not and never is bound to a place. The Lord was able to show Daniel the place so powerfully that Daniel was there for all intents and purposes. He existed there. That is a reminder of the power of the Lord when he speaks to his people. It's not just hearing the words. You can be transported to where he wants you. So immediately for me, the first question becomes, what is up with this ram and his two horns? And since we know approximately that the third year of the reign of Belshazzar was about 550 BC, we find kind of an interesting historical tidbit here. The ram and the two horns represent the kingdoms of Medea and Persia. The ram and two horns show that the two separate kingdoms of Medea and Persia are starting a period of an alliance. So unlike the, the previous vision when they were kind of considered separate, in this vision, they are seen together, and that is a reality that is about to occur. The change of the symbolism in, in the vision is appropriate as it represents the situation as it will become from a historical perspective. So moving on to Daniel 8, 5 through 7. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So now again, we see this male goat come onto the scene, uh, moving so rapidly that his feet didn't even touch the ground. So who is this male goat? What does it represent? So for us in the immediate, in Daniel, it represents, and it's representative of the soon-to-be emergent and conquering Greece empire, the empire of Greece. Grecian empire? Greece, okay? The single horn is Alexander the Great. So if you've heard or studied world history for any length of time, have you heard that name, Alexander the Great? Yes, no, maybe. Hello. Okay, everybody's nodding. All right, great. If you've... So from a worldly perspective, he was a pretty impressive individual. He was a general in the Greek army at 21, and he conquered all the way up into India by his 26th birthday. That's pretty impressive. The male goat took out this ram entirely and decisively, right? And we know in approximately 334 BC, there will be tests later of all these dates. So write them down. The Greek army under Alexander met the Persians at the Branicus River. Alexander rushed them. He only lost in this battle about 100 men. Um, Persians, not so much. 
Tens of thousands of men were lost in this engagement. So that is this utter defeat of the Persians and Alexander's kingdom lasted for a super, super long time, right? No. <laughs> so Daniel 8, verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So here we see this singular leader, this raising up this powerful military person, at the ripe old age of 33, he died. And it was more than likely due to the crazy debauched life that he lived. Uh, probably might have been poisoned, might have been something, but okay, he lived a life um, selfish. And when he died, four of his generals were given a quarter of his empire. And so each one of those individuals was now ruling over an immense area, even larger than some of the previous kingdoms in the ancient Near East even though it was only a quarter of what Alexander conquered. <clears throat> and yet, when we read those previous four verses, verses 5 through 8, that is all the time Daniel speaks of Alexander. That's all he warrants. Conquered the known world at the time, did it as a young individual. And so while the world looks at Alexander and marvels at his accomplishments, they mean very little to the Lord, and they merely mer serve to move his plan forward. Hold on to that thought. So in Daniel 8, verses 9 through 14, as we move on, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, Jerusalem. It grew great even to the host It didn't print on my paper. <laughs> Even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. All right, so who's this little horn that comes out? In approximately 175 BC, there was this uh, absolute nutcase who existed. And he loved to pray in the Lord, and he called himself an Antiochus. Well, he called himself Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant the illustrious god Antiochus. Others just called him Apeminius, which means madman. <laughs> so this is this little horn that's grown its east, and he's moving and taking over, and he's trying to establish this kingdom, and he wants to become great. And so he was power hungry, and he was evil, and he really did not like the Jewish people. In fact, when he failed in invading G Egypt and one of his things that he was going, uh, there was a rumor that he died during that campaign. And so the Jews in Palestine, they celebrated and they sought and they were like, hey, let's reinstate the high priest in the temple. Uh, and of course, when he came back, he did not take that well. And uh, he accused the uh, Jews of rebellion. And over the period of three days, he killed some 40,000 of them. Uh, he defiled the temple installed an altar to Zeus in there, performed human sacrifices on the altar. He banned the Jewish people from following the religious practices like circumcisions and even made them eat unclean animals. So this is, again, we go from the Medes and the Persians and then they get conquered by the Greeks 
and then that gets divided by the four, and then this person gets up, and it starts and comes back. And consistently through all this is God's people are treated great. Not really. (laughs) God's people are treated poorly, and they are put down in an attempt to put down the Lord. And so Antiochus did crazy things, but he also, he did them well. He was very successful in being a jerk, to put it bluntly. Um, And so Daniel, how does he respond to this, and how does he go? So in Daniel 8, verse 15 through 19, it says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. A lot of words. What's that mean? So in this, an angel of the Lord approached Daniel, and he heard the instructions. Daniel heard the instructions given to the angel, make him understand. And Daniel, being confronted by this vision and seeing what was happening, especially that last part of it, and then having an angel approach uh, caused Daniel to react like potentially many of us would probably react. Uh, Daniel fell to his face right? That's a lot to take in. Seeing God's people killed in the temple of the Lord defiled, that's a significant burden for Daniel to see. Remember, what do we know about Daniel? Daniel had a heart first for the Lord, right? And then he had a heart for the Lord's people. Daniel knew of the captivity he was under and kind of what was coming. And this vision that he saw, this is a visceral moment for Daniel And he's seeing even worse things. However, at the end of verse 17, it gives us a clue and the spark of hope that comes for Daniel and for us. And he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. This is important because Daniel did not need to understand all the dates, all the times, all the players' names, all the stats. He didn't need to understand all of this stuff. He needed to understand that the vision referred to the end of the reign of Antiochus specifically. And for us, it shows what's going to happen to the Lord's enemies generally, right? Secondly, this vision gives us another glimpse into the nature of those opposed to the Lord and and the why of what they do. When we look at the Persian Empire, we look at the Greek, we look at Antiochus. There's this continual process to prove that they, man, is better than and bigger than the Lord, our God. As one of the authors in the research I had did said, Daniel's vision will give him some understanding of the nature of evil and the reasons that it must be destroyed if the kingdom of God is to last forever. Even with the hope and explanation to come, Daniel reacts in an interesting manner when he understands this will occur outside of his lifetime. We get towards the end of this chapter, and y'all are going, wow, he's moving quick, but this is just part one, 
there's two more parts, okay? So Daniel 8, 26 and 27 says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel became sick for many days, as it says right there. We just read it. That's Daniel's heart on full display for the people of the Lord. Even though he's not going to experience this, this is outside of his lifetime, he breaks for those that will experience it. He falls down. He becomes sick. And unfortunately, Daniel is different from many spiritual leaders then and, again, many of our unfortunate, fortunately for many of our spiritual leaders now, in that he only sought to honor and build God's kingdom, not his own. And for all we know of Daniel, it would seem he would be content to exist in obscurity if the kingdom and the work of God were proclaimed. He yearned to see the people of the Lord live in peace with the Lord. And so that's why we see that reaction at the end. So that's the historical stuff of Daniel out of the way. That's part one. And if you're a Paul Harvey fan, I'm going to page two. Okay? <clears throat> some of you get that and some of you don't, and that's okay. I'm a little older than, than I let on. So that's a brief look at the history of the text, the vision, what it means. So that's good. We, we need to have that. We need to understand that. One, again, because as we look at that quote at the beginning, we see Scripture is real and truthful and alive, and it describes things that really happen. And when we know and understand that what's described in the text is true and real, it means the promises that come forth from that is also true and real. Okay? We have the opportunity to read the text and discern what it means for us today. Uh, opportunity and calling. It's a great vision and hope, seeing of how it all came to pass as it was re revealed to Daniel. However, if you remember earlier, I talked, uh, while it describes actual events and things that happens, it also teaches this overarching truth that's for generations to come. Again, our generation and the generations to come. So the first thing I want to consider from this text is this. Those opposed to the Lord... Those people, institutions, governments that we call evil inevitably reach past their grasp. They will and do fail. The Persian Empire fell. Then the Greek, Antiochus, Rome, Hitler, Jim Jones, and then, and then. These evil institutions fail. It does not matter how powerful, how intelligent, how hidden how corrupt, how well-funded evil is. It will always overstep itself, trip over itself, and be revealed. Because what is sin? Sin is transgressing or overstepping the law of God. Eventually, when you constantly break the law, the law will break you. And I'm sorry for those of you who just like me heard the law and order, two notes. That's a law and order type thing. When you break it, the law will break you. But those in opposition to the Lord never know when to stop. 
because there is never a condition that exists that would let them. Ultimately, when they're transgressing, when they're sinning, what are they doing? They're seeking to be like God or even better. Are they not? Was that not the lie that started in Genesis? And they never can. So there is never a condition that exists while a slave to sin that brings peace and contentment with it. It will never be enough because you are not God. These institutions are not his. Secondly, we can see that worldly examples of strength, of power and influence mean precisely and only what God allows them to mean. The empires of the Persian and Greeks were massive in their day. Neither exists like that today. They were the superpower nations of their day. Yet, in God's plan and God's presence, they only warrant just a few lines of Scripture. The same is true today. Let's be honest, we're fortunate to be living in the United States. But it means very little compared to God and His kingdom. Because this will crumble away when the Son of Man returns to reign forever. This is not the be-all, end-all. When God's people asked for a king to be like the other nations, it was another example of us as people being dumb. And we make the same mistakes over and over. When we put our faith, our hope, our trust, our love, our fear, our pride in anything other than the Lord, we claim at that moment that it is better for us than he is. And when he judges, it does not matter what we think or thought of something. All that matters is what, is are we living a life that seeks God first and only? That's what matters. Thirdly, I've always wanted to do something where I could use the word thirdly. Thirdly, the world and the prince that has been given dominion for a time in it is lazy, yet consistent in their opposition to God's work in our life. It's a common, repeated process over and over. Step one, bring in questions and doubts about what God says, what his word says. Step two, speak partial truths and skew things just a little bit to make us feel like it must be okay because it makes more sense to us. Step three, encourage us to double down and bring others along in our transgression. Convince others of our false path. And step four, persecute, dismiss, accuse, and blame others who oppose our new morality. That's the four steps since Genesis. That's it. He hasn't changed. Why? Because he's lazy. I said that before. And why else? Because it still works. If you pay attention to all the different religious conventions and associations, etc., you see this being played out and how they now approach things like sexuality, marriage, abortion, violence, oppression, etc. They claim to hold this new understanding or teaching or want to be a place for everyone. 
The issue is Jesus already gave us the answer to all of these questions and every other question. And he did it in Mark 12, 30 and 31. What is it? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. There's no other commandment greater than these as told to us by Jesus himself. So that's the answer to all these questions. There is no gray area in this. It's not about you. It's not about me. Technically, it's not even about others. It's about us putting the Lord first in all things. Then loving those around us as we love ourselves. And the reality is when we put God first in all things, we learn to love ourselves how he loves us. Not how the world defines it, but how he does. And he loves us because whose image were we made in? We're made in his. This does not mean that we do not speak truth to others. <laughs> we don't remain silent all the time. No, it's not far from it. God loves us so much that he tells us his expectations. He tells us he knows we will fail. And then he sent Jesus to restore the relationship. He also tells us that there is no path to restoration with him outside of accepting the work of Jesus on the cross. He tells us that he has standards and he will not change. We must change. We must seek to identify through the work of the Holy Spirit those areas that are an abomination to the Lord and turn away. That's what we're called to do. We're called to speak that truth. But it starts with us. And I'm going to say it again. Satan is lazy, which means we need to be the opposite. We need to be active. And even more than active is we need to be consistent. If all you would do is attend Sunday gathering and nothing else, you're doing exactly what Satan hopes you do. You're being lazy. It's not the volume or even intensity. You can't say, well, I went to gathering on Sunday and I prayed and worshiped my rear off. Whew, I'm done for the week. That's not how you gain. That's not how you get better. It's about consistently. Are you consistently seeking the Lord every day? Are you consistently putting him first? Are you consistently fill in the blank? What do you spend more time on or doing in an average week? And some might say, oh, Nathan, you're starting to get a little legalistic. The first thing I say is, no, I'm not. Okay. But what I'm saying is, consistency doesn't mean 23 and a half hours a day of Scripture reading all the time, unless he called you to do that. I don't know. But it means focusing on the Lord consistently every day and every moment, because as we do that consistently, you notice the theme, consistently, we tend to focus then on whatever we do consistently and find ways to incorporate it into everything we do. Am I right? I know some of you do this thing where you throw a disc, <laughs> do disc golf, <laughs> some fun stuff. If you like disc golf, how many times do you work disc golf into the conversation throughout the week? Quite a few, right? If you like sports, I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs> but how many times do you work that into the week? If you like cars, if you like whatever you like, think about that. 
And I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong, but I'm saying that's the law of consistency. When we start focusing on it a little bit every day, every day, every day, everything becomes an opportunity to talk about what we focus on consistently. So if I'm consistently focused on the Lord, what happens to my conversation throughout the week? What happens to my interactions? Not only do I find opportunities to talk to people, but I find opportunities to talk to people about what I love, which is the Lord. Finally, there's a couple minor points to consider. From, from this point forward in Daniel, and if you were around like months ago when I talked about Daniel 1, you'll know that part of this was written in one language, part of in another. In this point, chapter 8, it's written in Hebrew. Because from this point forward, the rest of Daniel, it's for the benefit of the Lord's people, speaking specifically to us. And this helps us understand that God's people will suffer at the hands of those in opposition to the Lord at times. Okay? But in all those times, it will only last for as long as the Lord has determined it will. We have hope because there is not a moment in time that is not under the Lord our God's authority or direction. Also, again, I like this. Daniel fell to the ground, and then he fell into this deep sleep because these visions, they overwhelmed him, and it was beyond his understanding, and he was like, I'm out. I'm out. Yet, when God desires to speak to us and reveal the truth to us, he fills us with his grace and strength to hear his words to allow us to be encouraged. We're not worthy on our own. This stuff will overwhelm us. We are worthy to hear from the Lord because he fills us with his grace and his strength. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. And finally, Daniel was told of the vision, given the explanation. And then in 26, what was he told? Seal it up. Don't talk about it. It's about the future. It made Daniel sick for many days. It left him appalled. Yet what did he do? Daniel went about the king's business afterwards. He did his job. Even one who has communed with the Lord and has received favor is still expected to do the job they're called to do. Being a believer, being saved, this does not mean we are above doing the job we are called to do wherever we're called to do it, be it in the promised land or being as an exile in Babylon. The home, at school, office, wherever, it means that when we do the work we are called to do, we do it while still abiding with and following the Lord. It could lead, living a life like that, to a furnace or a den of lions. But we do it regardless. Do the work you're called to. So, coming to the end, part three. Page three. What do you want to call it? Or 20, if you're doing my printout. So, I want to end today with some wisdom and thank you praise team for starting Ecclesiastes 1, because I want to end with some wisdom from one of the most intelligent people or the most intelligent person on the earth apart from Christ, King Solomon. King Solomon, he asked to be blessed with wisdom and the Lord did. Uh, of course, King Solomon being human, messed it up <laughs> still, right? However, Ecclesiastes does provide us with some great insight. So continuing on in, in the first part of Ecclesiastes, 9 through 11, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, 
and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In the time of Daniel, in our time now, and in the future, man will continue to search for the same thing and he will find the same failures. Because happiness is not found in the things of this world. How many things in the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the United States today, under King Solomon, they were considered tremendous. But they have no place in our memories today. Because the things of this world ultimately matter not. We should always seek eternal blessings, and those are only found in the Lord our God. Continuing on in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more we seek knowledge, understanding, mastery of the things and institutions of this world, the more wickedness and pain we're going to see. People turn from the Lord to the point of persecuting those that love the Lord. This is what happens. It happened then. It's happening now. It'll happen in the future. And it's folly to think we can force them to change or find a way to bring peace unto ourselves, doing it by ourselves, by our actions. We must hate sin, value Christ above all, and seek the peace that is only found in the Lord our God. That's what we do. So the call and the command and the encouragement is do not live a life distracted by the lies of Satan. The governments, the leaders, the people opposed to the Lord, all the craziness that exists will only last for the time God has determined it will. No matter how scary it seems, it will be wiped from the earth at the appointed time. God will establish an eternal kingdom for his people, and through Christ we can be part of his eternal kingdom in praise and adoration of the Lord our God. And that is our hope. That's this eternal hope that we're learning in Daniel. That's the lesson to be taken. So I ask you, I leave it with this. Do you know the Lord? Is he first and foremost in your life? Are you holding something back today? Are you holding anger, hurt, sin in your heart? Are you declaring that that is more important to you right now than the love and grace of Christ? Christ? 